Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Is there anything you've been thinking about or working on for 30 years? Today's guest, Ben Richards, shares his 30 years experience of writing, researching, and working in the field of climate change. Ben got his doctorate in paleoclimate change, and he is a speaker and a writer and a communicator on this issue. He is also a charismatic Christian and a Bible teacher who has done work for YWAM and other mission agencies around the world in the UK and in the Middle East. I think you'll agree this is not a usual combination for climate change scientists. You can find out more about Ben's work at climateintercessors.org, and I will put the information in the show notes. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ben Richards. Because uh, it's your daughter that asked the best question I've ever received in any <laughs> theology. Because you know how I do those children's, I used to do these things yeah. where I'd say, children, you can ask me anything, and they write them on pieces of paper. And anything. it was your daughter who... <laughs> I opened up the piece of paper and it said, how many times a day do you fart? <laughs> Which is the, children's question. the best theology question I've ever got. And the answer was, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, somebody near, living near you might. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to get her on the podcast one day. I, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? So how's, how's it going with the uh, climate initiative, the climate change, climate care initiative that you've been trying to launch and be a part of very interesting launch so we're getting more and more people on board which is what has to happen um remind me, remind means... us of the name of it we don't have a name oh I we see. should have a name <laughs> you probably we should, should have a name good idea Stephen. <laughs> so um but there's two initiatives i'm part of one does have a name actually which is climateintercessors.org and that is an attempt to provide a space internationally through mainly zoom calls um, to pray about the climate situation in a sort of intercessory way. We did a launch back in November, and that is going to be properly launched um, at the end of January 21 here. Um, so that, that's experimental. It's like, let's all learn together. Um, we found out already that if you can pray about anything else, you can pray about the climate. Um, you don't have to know much about the climate, uh, but having a few people on the call that do know a bit about the climate helps to pray sometimes. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And we've already seen well one definite thing we prayed about has changed dramatically it's been a change of policy other things i think we have seen a change a shift but it's not quite as obvious as that one so yeah that's just fun that that's about um putting yourself in a position where god could say please can you pray about this one because i'd like to do something but maybe god's hands are tied or something, so is something this a, similar to that <laughs> you meet as a group i mean are you are you all waiting and listening together as a group as you pray or is this just like a list that you are each taking your own time yeah it, it's more over? it's more the former but it is it is quite broad um theologically and sort of sort of how you approach things um and, and so yeah we're going to feel our way through that and, and how we integrate everybody's different ways of praying and different ways of, of seeing it but i think the fundamental thought is let's try and pray prayers that are up to the level of a, of a climate crisis um rather than oh god we're sorry and please bless the world um which is you know it's, it's, it's a start but uh, there is more available so we're up after the more um so that's going on and that's really with a view to cop 26 which is the big glasgow un conference in november 
Um, and that is the other main, well, the biggest focus I have at the moment is towards getting um, a, an intercession presence and other sorts of kingdom of God representations, I suppose, in Glasgow in November. Um, so I'm just putting that word out there wherever I can find people within my organization, which is why I'm youth group mission. Um, and I'm sure we'll end up with maybe a dozen or three dozen or six dozen people coming along and, uh, and doing what we do. Um, and the fundamental vision there is uh, let's, whatever, we, whatever else we do, let's make sure that we pray for prayers that God wants prayed for an international conference. Um, none of us have done that before specifically. We've done prayer in other settings, but let's let's find out what we can do to help this thing along in God's scheme of things. Well, what would what would it look what would a successful you say you, we do whatever it is we do? What would a successful conference look like? What would so I think it's pretty clear but but a successful climate conference would be a fair set of um enforceable or or or, or, or measurable agreements between different countries to reduce carbon emissions in a way that fundamentally which is fair um, and I suppose which is effective. So it's a very, very complicated field actually. Um, as a science uh, background person, as someone with, with, with climate science as a PhD, um, it, it, it's very complicated. Different countries emit lots of different sorts of gases in different ways. Um, how do you measure? How many times like a day do you fart? Aviation. <laughs> well, how about that? I mean, that's one of them. <laughs> but very minor in the Your scheme of things. Your family is say. really interested in gaseous emissions. I realise. <laughs> it turns out that you can fly across the Atlantic, and it makes a lot of difference. And you can fart, and it makes almost no difference. Almost none at all. <laughs> Actually, Ben, I'd I'd really like to hear about like, I really want to get to where you where you are now, but also tell us where you started. What was the kind of um social and political and when it comes to the the climate what what kind of social and political world were you born into what was the the kind of imagination or or, or worldview that you had growing up and where are you now <laughs> uh, yeah if i was a gp or, or was a doctor um that's a family doctor for non-ukers um and so it was a fairly um science um aware family i would say um, and I liked that at school. I loved it. In fact, um, did well at the science um, and ended up um, having spent a year teaching in, in Pakistan, teaching in a, an interesting school. But I ended up um, doing a PhD in a geography department, but no geography department you could even imagine would be like this. It's full of white coats and um, reagents and uh, hydrofluoric acid and all sorts of bizarre things. Um, and that was about measuring where the glaciers were in the Himalayas. Uh, in the last glacial cycle. So you're probably aware that there are glaci glaciations or gl ice ages, with, um, and uh, typically the ice was more extensive, let's say. Um, and in the Himalayas, we just didn't know when that was. Was that the same time as, say, in Europe or North America, or was it a different time? And it turns out it's both. Um, and that was what I, what I was measuring really interesting stuff very interesting part of the world to go to wow it's amazing but you don't um, you don't grow up you don't as a little boy you don't say when I grew up I want to study glaciation in the Himalayas what how did you get into this where did that come from this this whoever does it was just a, yeah that was just an amazing opportunity um I think having been there before um I was therefore able to say yes of course I can do this even though I hadn't actually done much climate stuff in my undergraduate geography degree were you aware at the time that this was 
that this was a key issue? I mean, were you were you interested in the geography and the ice, or were you actually interested in the climate change question? Uh, yeah, both. Um, but as a schoolboy, I started the Ecology Society, um, so I must have had some already interest. We, we, you know, in those days, we we persuaded people to recycle paper and change the light bulbs. All right, that's great progress. Uh, it, the school saved lots of money <laughs> um, as a result of the Ecology Society. I believe it's still going, actually, now the Eco Society. Um, so there was a latent interest, um, but I wasn't as fascinated as in, in climate science um, per se. Um, and, and even having done the PhD, some of that was, let's face it, PhDs can be really boring. And some of that was really boring, although some of it was really interesting. Um, and, but I've followed it since as a hobby, really, because I had stepped out of the science um, having done the PhD. Um, I followed it as a hobby and got more and more concerned as things didn't get better. So essentially, I, I would sit in um, scientific conferences in the 90s and say, mm, well, I'm sure it won't get that bad because they'll do something about it. You know? And, and there'd be like three different scenarios put out there uh, by the scientists. And one would be major changes uh, to our emissions. One would be uh, a few changes. One would be worst case business as usual. We've actually done worse than that in our emissions, worse than business. Yeah. So uh, just because the economy has grown so quickly and because there's been very active um, campaigning by fossil fuel groups to muddy the waters um, so that people think there is some confusion over the science, which there really hasn't been for quite a long time, actually, for, for about three decades. Um, so, yeah, so the... So you're trained, towards... your doctorate oh. in climate, your your yeah. doctorate is in climate change and geography or geographical so it, science? It, <laughs> yeah, it's not actually a discipline. Um, it's geography, yeah. it's geography okay. department, um, and it's, it's called paleoclimate. All right, so I am going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to guess that there's not a whole lot of people with doctorates in paleoclimate who work for youth with a mission. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't found one yet. So tell me, where did that transition come from? At what stage were you starting to realize you wanted to work with YWAM? I wasn't. I didn't realize that. I, I got the other way around. I got so interested in the people. Um, of, of uh, these parts of the world. I thought, well, really, you know, it would be great to be able to improve their lives in whatever way you can through development and through community transformation. And, and also through um, helping reduce the conflicts and misunderstandings they have between each other. Um, and, and indeed between us as Westerners, I suppose, and, and people who have been colonized in their recent history. And this was in so, Pakistan, you were- that's, that's mainly Pakistan, yeah. yeah. Um, so that, I transitioned into that having found people who are working in it. Um, they ha they happen to be of youth permission. I think I'd put it that way. Um, which is, a, it turns out, is, is an amazing network of people with, with really brilliant values in lots of ways. Um, but it's very diverse. Gosh, it's a really interesting bunch of, of different people. But it does allow you to do pioneering things quite well, quite in, in new ways, new things in new ways, I suppose. So it's a little bit about what it's like to be, a, a, to care about the science of, of climate change in the politics of climate care and to also work with a charismatic outfit how where do you do you find it a happy home are there where are the charms where are the challenges what what, what does it feel like to, to care about these things and not want to that's a hard question steve <laughs> um i think what what is good and what where it works is it's quite there's a generally quite holistic 
view. Okay, charismatic, yes, there's, there's a label there, but um, uh, it is broad, actually. Um, and many people recognize the holis holism, is that a word? Holisticness of the gospel. Um, so you're not just dealing with forgiveness of sins, you are dealing with healing of your inner life, you are dealing with how to transform societies, you are dealing with how to, um, let's say, how to operate as a family and, and how to live as community and things like that. So there's a recognition that this isn't some narrow little religious thing, if you say the right thing, and you're fine, uh, but, but there's a deep work of God that's needed, which actually goes into lots and lots of areas. So from that, um, I've met other people within the movement who, who can see that God is interested in, let's call it creation care, um, at a very fundamental level. And so although other people haven't thought of that yet or only just thought of it, um, there is a space to be, to be worked out in, in that, that sort of thought. Now, um, listeners can't, if, if you're a listener to this, you can't see the Zoom call, which I'm looking at. And when Ben said, let's call it creation care, you had a little cheeky grin on your face and you paused. What, what else it? would you call it? Why don't, do, what, what, what is it about that phrase that, you, that caused you to stop and, and grin a bit? Well, we, we all like the idea that, um, that God made the earth and that, therefore he cares about it, right? Right. Um, as a scientist, you come across people who, who are strict seven-day creationists from maybe 6,000 years ago. And, and it's a real shocker because there's so tiny attempts at evidence at that. There's no evidence of that really compared to the evidence for a long earth and, and some form of, of development over that time. Um, so, you know, as soon as the word creation is mentioned in a scientific setting, then people are, oh my goodness. Oh, and yet those Christians who have developed the understanding more of um, God caring for what he made yeah. um, have labeled it creation care as probably, I, I guess, the least bad option. I have asked for an explanation of how that developed and nobody's quite given me it, but I'm sure there was a great discussion over the last two or three decades of what are we going to call this thing where we're trying to remind people of the, uh, the depth of God's concern for what he built. I mean, so is, I that, is that stewardship? <laughs> is that, was that what we like to call stewardship or dominion? How well, much this, is, kind... this is a really interesting question. Yeah. The, the word stewardship does capture quite a lot and it has currency because we're used to uh, money, <laughs> currency. Mm -hmm, we're mm -hmm. used to the idea that you should look after what you have. There's that parable of the talents and so mm, on. Mm. Um, but actually, it doesn't capture all of the idea there in Genesis 1, mm -mm. 26 and so on, where, where he says, okay, well, now we're going to make some people um, so that they may look after all these animals and so on. Yeah. So there is more than just a stewardship in that thought, I understand. Well, you may have quite a lot more than that. Hmm. Um, so but beyond stewardship, there's also a sense of loving okay. and, 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 and um, a passionate, heart-filled involvement. Yeah. And there's also a sense of partnership. So the, the danger of stewardship is, like, oh, here's, here's these talents, go off and do something with it, with no ongoing involvement. Whereas I think it's clear that God's idea was for his, him to be involved in that process, if you call it stewardship, to at least be checking back with the, the owner of a car that you've lent. Mm. Um, if, if, if God's lent us a car to drive, um, there are points when you've borrowed a car and you think, hang on, um, where are the lights on this? I can't watch the windscreen. So you phone up the owner and say, look, how do I, I use the problem here? Um, so at least the odd phone call to God. But actually, I think it's much more than that. It's like any other area of life where God would like to be deeply involved in us and how we, we work through the, the life we're in. 
I mean, a lot of people imagine I in your world of evangelicals and charismatics and is um, the idea that stewardship is basically exploitation. And you see this explicitly mentioned uh, evangelicals, certainly in America, will yes. often very explicitly say, no, our, our role as stewards of this world is actually to exploit it. Um, famously, I... Ann Coulter said we should rape the earth. Uh, I'll, that's right yeah so tell us i mean what's the difference between so, so, but that's what right. do you say I mean, to people you know, when you meet uh, these people how uh, do you uh, how do you talk to them uh, further example um my friend who had interviewed some texan farmers who's basically who are strong believers in many ways but uh, evangelical their idea of, of the responsibility was to turn sunlight into money so no no thought that god would be interested in how that process was, how whether the soil survived that process for the next 10 years or not, um, whether the food was actually nutritious enough for the people who ate it, um, whether you destroyed any other parts of the ecosystem that might have been flourishing there before you used certain chemicals. Um, so, so they had a short-term mentality, they had an idea of extraction um, and, and not of, of ongoing stewardship. So I, I think this is a fundamentally wrong interpretation of uh, dominion um, and that is often the word they use um, it, it is there in the translation the King James of, of Genesis um, uh, but the word whichever one you translate it as uh, is much more to do with stewardship and processing and looking after and having it like in your family um, so in that would be a much longer term thought and i think one of the key differences actually is is the long termness abraham was promised that um every through him every family of the world would be blessed so that's a that's vastly extensive in numbers and but also down the generations and we should be aware of our children's children's um welfare as well as our own that's part of loving your neighbor i think it's, it's just in, in time instead of the one uh, next door to you so have you been able to i mean I'm looking for some, to give my listeners some actual practical tip. I don't think many of my listeners to Tent Theology are need convincing mm. that climate chaos is a, re is a reality and that humans have, in <laughs> have, have contributed very much to this mm. and that uh, the role of the human is not to exploit the world. I don't think my listeners will have that. I do think that a lot of listeners to Tent Theology will have friends and family members or will have come from cultures where it's almost impossible to talk about climate care to them yeah what kind of i mean what kinds of approaches have you found to be successful how do you how do you hold yourself when you're in a room of convinced christians that uh that caring about science and <laughs> and responsibility and holism is a is a godlike concern what do you do uh, well, I, I don't have a huge experience on that yet, actually. Yeah. To be quite honest with you. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is part so of your I, project I know, I know, here, right? Yeah, I, I know I will. Yeah. <laughs> this obvious. is part of what you're doing now with YWAM. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I will have to. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will engage with respect. I will seek whatever common ground there is. I mean, for example, um, I know that many... Christians of that sort of persuasion will still be involved in disaster relief. You know, if there's a flood down the road or a, or a record-breaking hurricane, well, they will get in their cars and drive down a load of food and water to help people. Um, well, that is happening more often than it used to. 
because climate change is a humanitarian issue. Yeah, and we encounter it through extreme weather. We don't encounter it through one and a half degrees average warming. That's, that, that's meaningless to people. But we do encounter it through, even in the UK, through um, very much more frequent heavy rain, bringing floods to systems which were fine before. So yeah, the, the other thing is always language. So I would try and avoid climate change or even the word climate, even though to me, it, it, for some people, it just it's just a red flag. It just sounds something political to them. Um, so, you know. Okay. What a world, what a world we're in. Do you find <laughs> I, much, uh, do you think there's much success in essentially just ignoring those people and only trying to work with, with already, with fellow travelers, with people of goodwill? rather than convince hostile people. I, I could do that, and, and I won't spend too much time trying to convince people who are not interested in being convinced. Um, and I think that really fundamentally, it is about a picture of God. Um, and, and fundamentally, for me, the, the transition into this effort in my work has been because of discovering that I, I had only a partial view of a creator God, actually, um, let alone a redeemer of creation God. Um, and so to allow people to, to journey on that way is, is the only long-term way for them. It, it is a discipleship issue. It's about if you love the Lord your God of all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that will involve everything that he made. You won't want to be smashing his plates or his, you know, spray canning his beautiful painting. So um, whatever the equivalent of that is, whether it's a bit of recycling here and there or, or having a nice garden, um, you know, many people do some of that, and yet it isn't yet out of worship. It's just a sort of a bit of an awareness, I suppose. Yeah. Um, well, let's do a bit of science, scientific-based worship right now. I, tell us about, like, tell us about what we're looking at right now. What is what is the state of the world right now? What's, uh, you know, when when the when they are, are going to be meeting in Glasgow, what are they going to be talking about? Yeah, uh, the world is significantly different to um, the one um, that humans entered, I suppose. Um, so God designed the earth with uh, an atmosphere that was quite good at balancing itself. It, to an extraordinary degree, actually, we had a stable climate um, for the last uh, 10,000 years. Um, and we needed carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It keeps us warm. We would be about minus, I think it's minus 17 degrees C on average in the, in the world. So we, we, we wouldn't be able to survive. Um, uh, uh, so, but that was just about right. Um, and it turns out, but um, what was emitted every year was the same as what was absorbed every year by the, the natural systems that he designed, um, give or take three or four percent. Uh, that's about what happened. Um, however, uh, if you burn a lot of buried carbon, um, mainly coal and mainly oil, um, that really does disrupt things. There is enough of that we've burnt to really wreck the system and overwhelm its ability to absorb. And so we've gone from about 270 parts per million to around about 415 or so parts per million at the moment. Now that, that's very nearly um, a 50% increase in under 200 years. That's a drastic change. The last time we had this much um, in the atmosphere was um, with what we would call a hothouse earth. It was the Eemian um, thermal maximum. Um, you can look that up if you want anybody. <laughs> I suggest skepticalscience.org or .com. They have a really good set of science and answering questions. Um, so uh, what this means is then that we're, we're, we're trapping a lot of heat, which would normally have escaped. Um, and average temperatures, yes, are increasing. Um, so what are the consequences? Well, 
for a start, anywhere which had ice at its equilibrium level, like the Himalayas, is losing it very, very rapidly because it melts much more than it would have done before. The, uh, the Greenland ice sheet, which is an enormous um, three kilometer thick, I think, uh, chunk of ice, it's got enough water there if it was all melted to raise sea level by seven meters. Um, there's an important store of water on a global scale. Um, well, it's, it's melting faster than it has done for um, many thousands, probably tens of thousands of years. Um, and that seems to be sustained now. So uh, you're getting more rainfall on it. You're getting therefore faster melting, therefore it gets lower, therefore you get more rainfall because it's less high, so it gets less snow. So these are the kind of dynamics which are called um, tipping points or feedbacks. We haven't yet necessarily reached the tipping point of Greenland, but it, it's probably within sight. It's very hard to see these things except in the hindsight, I think. But it's definitely a feedback. Do you see what I mean? That as as you've disturbed the system, then it it, it responds by um, producing more problems. Um, there's others in the uh, say the tundra areas of, of Siberia and um, uh, Canada, where you're producing a lot more um, stored carbon into the atmosphere by decomposing the peat that's been there in frozen state for um, a very very large number of thousands of years. And I think a typical like. Am I right? Like, I'm, I mean, that's very typical. I mean, you see this, like Donald Trump even talks about this, like, oh, if global warming is so true, how come there's snow in, 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 Jan, in July? And they, and how come it's so cold right now if global war? And they, they sneer as if that is some proof. And it's, but it's so obvious that, well, if you melt ice, it just displaces cold water for a while, but eventually that's going to heat up again, right? I mean, it's, it's a creation of, it, it's, chaos it's climate chaos it's not climate climate warming. is a complicated thing yeah it's a really really complicated thing um and so one of the consequences seems to be that the jet stream that goes around the north of the, of the world has bigger loops than it would have done before and therefore the loops can bring you down some cold air from the arctic in fact i think last year was it even before we had we had colder air here than we had in the arctic circle right and that's an unusual thing in historical terms and probably is due to um climate and, but it, even cold weather in one area of the world can be attributed to a global increase of temperature. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing to look at here is um, the, the, the breaking of records. So, of course, every year you're going to break a few records, even in, in a standard um, climate. But with the increasing warmth we have, most of our records being broken are at the top end. In fact, 99.9% of them are. Um, so you don't tend to get records of, look, the worst snowfall in, in our history you get lots of records of, oh my goodness, 34 degrees um, for four days in a row in the UK. Well, we yeah. had that last summer. The longest, um, driest times, yeah. Yeah, you get a lot of those, and, and wettest. Um, so a warm atmosphere can hold a lot more moisture and can dump it more rapidly. Um, and co couple that with slower moving storms and you have a lot of intense rainfall, which can overwhelm um, drainage systems that were fine um, sort of 50 years ago. And it is, a lot of this would be connected also to our economics. I mean, we're building in places mm. that are not helping. We, <laughs> right? We're, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's unwise to put more money into Miami. Yes. Uh, it, it sits on a sponge. called, uh, And so war, sea level rise will come up through the streets, even if you built a, a very big wall down the seafront, which nobody would want anyway. So my, yeah, that sort of place is, is in trouble and they've, uh, they've doubled their, well, I've got a figure. It's, it's something like um, 
double the real estate value that they had 20 years ago. So they're really asking for trouble. Um, and there's lots of situations like that. Um, the floods in Houston um, were mainly for poorer areas, which have been built in, in places that are low-lying and are likely to flood. So there's lots of things in the UK we're still managing to build in flood-prone areas. It's bonkers. Um, it's it's going to cause problems. But so, so that's where you're, you're putting yourself in more danger. And the other side, the danger is becoming greater. You see what I mean? So they're both encroaching on each other um, in, in a conceptual point there. A few things. One is people will not be able to survive in some parts of the world due to what's known as the wet bulb temperature. That's where um, your ability to sweat out your heat is not sufficient. So this typically happens at, let's say, 30, uh, 54 degrees at about, maybe it's about 30 degree, 30% 30 humidity. Um, or Singapore, it's closer to some, where you have sort of 100% humidity. It's something in the 40s centigrade. Um, so this is, this is where the, the human body relies on losing heat, doesn't it, through sweating. Even if you're sitting under a fan, you wouldn't be able to lose enough heat. So even healthy people will, will suffer. Uh, a country I know, Pakistan, is quite close to that in the summer, and it wasn't there um, 30 years ago. And so this is this is the cause of a lot of human migration now. Lots of populations are going to be yeah. moving to. So what is the area? What what is the? Is there a particular band on on the planet? Yeah, or you, you, you can do the maths on it. There's there's a paper. There's several papers on it. Um, there's whole chunks of the Middle East which hits that. They tend to be areas close. You need a lot of humidity with the high temperatures. So it tends to be Gulf states, um, Pakistan, parts of India, um, Singapore's there on the list. And these are, you know, they're within reach now of hitting those. You could have it in the next few years. You could have an episode of mass die-offs um, unless, unless you could get people into air-conditioned situations. So do you see what I mean? We've been used to living in a certain way um, and adapted to that, but actually there'll, there'll be um, parts of the world which become uninhabitable. There's that, there's the storms. Um, so parts of the Caribbean have been hit by serious storms several times now, in the last, let's say, 10 years. Uh, these are historically powerful storms. They are as powerful as has ever come. And if you rebuild Costa Rica or Nicaragua or Guatemala or wherever, which, and it then gets destroyed two years later, that's, that also is, is really unsustainable. Um, and again, this is hitting the poorest much more uh, because they happen many many are living in in more uh disaster hit areas with fewer ways to cope um so there is a justice element to this whole climate thing which i think god cares about very deeply that who has caused the problem okay it's removed from our daily life in some ways if you drive you're not impacting the climate very much you're just burning a bit of fuel but as a whole our societies have emitted say 95% of the gas that's causing the trouble, whereas poorer countries with their larger populations have emitted the, the tiny fraction. But they're so it's just not the fair. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're first in line, unfortunately. We'll be hit heavily too, but um, yeah, there are, I was talking to somebody from Christian Aid. Um, she was saying that they used to be really prideful, correctly, in, in how much they did long-term development and they would always be strengthening communities and, and helping them to, to produce uh, things for the long term. But in recent years, there's been so many disasters, they've had to switch to doing more disaster relief, which is the short term. Often the same people, actually, but the people they've been trading up in one way were now doing the, 
the disaster relief. And so <clears throat> this is this a, a sea change um, in many parts of the world, which we in the West are, are, are partly insulated from. I don't think you could say that if you're in California with the <laughs> the fires. Um, and the science behind the fires isn't isn't simple, but it is fundamentally that a high higher temperatures are producing um, larger blazes. Um, yeah. yeah. What what else are we going to start seeing in our in our in our insulated bubbles of the <laughs> the English speaking West? Like what else, or Europe, the European Anglo-European sort of world? Like what what other things could we start to 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 get ready for or expect? Well, the thing that not keeps me awake, but the thing which really disturbs me in the long term is the sea level change. And again, you experience um, three millimeters of, of sea level rise by the fact that on the next storm, you get a surge that overtops your, um, your walls or destroys your beach. You don't experience it as a year by year steady growth. No, it'll just happen um, at once. Yeah, and so there's an awful lot of cities which are long-term unsustainable if this thing carries on. Um, and New York is putting billions into um, sea defenses after Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy. Um, they, they saw, oh my goodness, this is going to cost us a lot. It's cheaper to build. <laughs> it's cheaper to build some big walls and try to keep it out. But in the long term, if we lose Greenland, for example, uh, seven meters. You know, I, I live at. Okay, I'm on the fifth floor, but but <laughs> the ground floor of my flat is something like five meters above sea level. Yeah. So in a hundred years' time, this place may not be. I, 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 that, that's sort of fast. So we're looking at like London and, and New York being like Venice with canals. Yeah, it could streets. be. Yeah, could be. Uh, you just you just don't want. You can't quite imagine. No. Huge numbers of, of global cities um, either having to move, or or what. That that is definitely a. It's it's not a, a fairy tale. This is very very likely indeed. Um, the way we're going, but our children or maybe children's children, um, will be facing that. Um, so I sh yeah. And and again, that'll happen through through big storms. So it'll happen in pulses. That's how people experience it. Um, so that's sea level, and then there's also flooding from high rainfall events, which we're getting a lot in the UK um, and the continent of Europe, um, and high, high temperatures. Um, none of our hardly any of our buildings in the UK are designed for uh, sustained high temperatures. You know, we have lots of glass. We have, we insulate to, we should insulate more probably to to keep them warm in the winter. Um, but then in the summer, you can't you can't lose enough heat. So our flat was very very hot in the last summer. Um, the, the sun would go down and just shine brightly into all of our bedrooms, and we would try to put the curtains up and everything else to try to, to stop it overheating. Now again, we've lived here 14 years, and that wasn't a major problem in the first uh, six seven years, and we've had uh, three years of it now where it's almost overwhelming. In fact, we escaped to Glasgow <laughs> last summer because <laughs> it's too much. Let's go on a field trip and get to know about Glasgow uh, and pray in Glasgow for this. Because uh, London was so, too hot. It was too hot. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. And you, your family is relatively mobile and you have the resources to do that. And imagine yeah. how... And we're healthy. Um, it it really do does... Imp yeah. yeah, it impacts people who are less healthy. Yeah. Uh, there are excess deaths. I think the excess deaths, the... Um, Excess deaths from this summer was one. It was in the it was in the thousands, but not the tens of thousands, I think. And that's Public Health England. Um, they've done a preliminary look at it um, for this year's. Last year's, well, okay, let's go back to the 2013 one, um, which was something like uh, 13,000 excess deaths across Europe. So, yeah, this is so this is serious. 
so Ben, so we talked, we began by talking about your daughter, my friend, your, your daughter, my friend who, who asks me how much I fart. Uh, what are you, what are you doing now for her? You, you talked about the climate space. Yeah. The next generation, it's going to start seeing these things. What, what are you doing right now for your, for your children? Uh, right. I feel like the, okay, we, we've done the, the steps of um, more efficient car driving less, um, Try not to waste electricity. Get it from a renewable source. Um, all those sorts of things. You're trying to use less plastic and less resources overall. Try to buy the things that will last longer, and you don't have to, you know, grow it out after a few years. Try to repair things if you can. All those sorts of things. And that's an ongoing journey. Um, food. Trying to eat less meat. Although I, I still I'm nowhere near a vegetarian. Um, but less well, vegetarian meat. diets aren't exactly going to solve the the issue of mass agribusiness and agriculture, are they? Yeah, it's about sourcing beyond that. But but um, eating less red meat uh, is is a very important way to reduce carbon footprint. Very important. Um, and and where you source it from. So um, getting it say from Brazil, which usually is is connected to de deforestation. Yeah, that's that is really serious. And so to eat a lot less of it is is a good idea. Um, from an economic, yeah. From a climate point of view, it, it may be the biggest step anyone can take, actually. Uh, once you've reduced your flying, that's probably the next step. Right. Um, yeah. So we're just eating less, quite a lot less of, of that stuff. Uh, yeah. But we still enjoy it. And, and some, I think does some the of the local, does, does that help to, to move towards local food sources as much as well, possible? Well, this is it. Yeah. There's, a, there's a fundamental thought I, I have, which is that I think probably food should be a bit more expensive. Um, to, to considering the impact on the environment, considering the welfare of the animals, considering the, the people involved, I think probably I'm, we're prepared to pay a little bit more for our food, even though we don't have a huge income. So I have every sympathy with people that, that would, would struggle with that. But yeah, I think eating less meat is important, but not a simple thing. Yeah. Generally, a learning to uh, maybe unlearn some of our habits about instant access to food to unseasonal food like uh you shouldn't be able to get strawberries in january <laughs> or if you do have strawberries in january it's because somebody shipped them all the way over from new zealand or whatever right yeah well you know but it does provide good good jobs in parts of the world that wouldn't have it otherwise but once it's in a plane you really are you know it's a it's a very costly thing to the environment to put things in a plane and transport even that if that flight would have happened anyway it still is it's very very damaging um there's all those steps. I mean, that's a journey. And I think everybody can just like try to improve by 10% a year or something like that on, on what they're doing. Um, there, there are carbon calculators out there. There's one on um, climatestewards.org, which is a Christian-run um, offsetting organization. Um, yeah, brilliant. So you can work out how, which bits of your life has, has made a, a bigger impact. There's a book called How Bad Are Bananas? Right. Um, the answer is not too bad, actually, because okay. they come in a ship. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, right. But um, how about, about them, which, which allows you to, to look at the different um, decisions on, on, on diff the relative impacts of different consumer choices. Uh, but overall, yeah, consuming less is, is an important part of this, really. Um, but if you asked about what, what the impact what, what for the children, I feel that the biggest impact is beyond individual choice. And it's more about um, some systemic changes that are needed. Um, and uh, this is what you might call spiritual warfare or, or sort of there's an element of evil in that, in, in how they have managed to subvert the, the human system to make powers a lot, and, a lot powers of Powers and principalities grown. Yeah. 
arrogant, yeah. Sort of thing. And, yeah. and um, so dislodging those is never simple, but it is possible in God, I think. Um, so it's a combination of campaigning and prayer and um, exploring the relationships you have and what God gives you to, to work on. Par Paris Agreement was a very important step forward. Do you know that the, um, the UN negotiator for Paris said that without the uh, presence and pressure of the faith groups at Paris, they never would have come up with a good agreement. How's that? So How there's a happen? sense that the moral pressure um, applied on governments and on negotiators by the Christians and others around really penetrated. And that's partly, I think, because we, we do tend to focus on, on, the fa on the human impact. It's not just on numbers and, and a degree here and a degree there. It's about lives wrecked and, and you know, sustainable societies that are no longer working because the rains don't come. Well, it's like, it's like I often say on this podcast, actually, Ben, like the, uh, the powers and principalities, the way the followers of Jesus fight the powers and principalities is they put a face to the faceless, right? And I mean, this is what you do. Like the powers and principalities have grown faceless. They've, they've just railroading over individual human lives. And so how we combat them is we say, these are the people who yes. are being affected and this is the, these are their names, right? Yes. These are the actual consequences of your bumper profits and you probably could have made quite good profits without destroying so much actually you just didn't they just didn't have the creativity or vision to do it uh, so I, I think there are many many creative options which if they went mainstream would would reduce how much impact we're having on the environment enormously and still give us a lot of what we live with that said i just don't believe that rampant consumerism is a very good philosophy to live and and, and that will always have a negative impact um, but we can live more simply and happily um, and still have i don't know some sort of economic growth if that still might be the wrong word for it but some sort of ongoing development and uh, <laughs> which would be sustainable and, and and much less impacting on the environment and we need to be much less impacting otherwise we, we can't continue indefinitely like this and this is where repentance comes in right change your ways change your hearts and your minds change your ways is part of the the approach yeah if if fundamentally we have um not respected the fact that god made all this and wanted us to look after it carefully if we haven't done that then there's a point there right there of repentance of oops sorry god uh i hadn't seen that now i can see it thank you show me more and let's live a different way show me what the other way is so again, it's about living it out in worship um, and, and respect for God rather than... Well, broad is the way that leads to destruction, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And it's not talking about some heaven or hell. It's talking about right now. The, yeah. the easy, easy, broad <laughs> path is destructive. But the narrow, harder path is life-giving. That's the way it works. That's the way the world works. Reality is that way, right? And we're seeing it all the time. We, we see the destruction happen all the time. It's not like we have to wait for the end of time and for us all to die and go to some weird heaven and hell scenario. It's like, no, we can see destruction right now. Based all on the clues life. are in front of us, yes. <laughs> we're but experiencing it daily. That's all, that's all right. And yet it's recognizing that um, our choices are limited, I suppose, by the situation we're in, which is partly due to the, what we just called the principalities and powers, but the, the system. Um, and and it's, it takes effort to go against that. And, it's, you know, you only have a certain amount of effort you can exert in life anyway. 
so you run out of energy or time you know um, how do you sustain your energy and your i mean I, again listeners can't see that ben is smiling the whole time he's been telling us about the end of the world and the destruction <laughs> he's Terrible smiling problem. and laughing what what, what <laughs> sustains your soul ben i mean it, it is it's, it's a delight in god isn't it it's, it's a sense that um, that that god is interesting and exciting and and you know develops new ideas and works with us and works in us and and that nothing's irredeemable and all that sort of thing yeah um that you don't think everything you don't think that the world is irredeemable oh this is an interesting question um you know well you do know uh, that john three sixteen, which we all think is to do with um god loving people it does actually say god so loved the world and the world is yeah. it's cosmos cosmos so yeah. god god has a thought beyond beyond the humans that he created also to the non-humans so i i haven't fully worked that out right but it, but there is clearly a thought in him um that the groaning creation of of uh romans 8 you should talk a bit about that Stephen. i'm sure i have <laughs> romans 8 creation all creation um, waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of god yeah i had definitely have talked about there you are. <laughs> yeah 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 so what's the revelation of the sons of god well that, that's us discovering who god made us individually group family um and as we discover that and live that out that obviously has an impact on creation well and the sons of god motif is one of ruling and reigning which brings us back to genesis and stewardship to rule and reign as god rules and reigns on earth and how does god rule and reign he sacrifices himself he withdraws his own power in order to make space for other powers like so we rule as God does, which doesn't mean we rule like some CEO or president striding across the world, raping it. We rule as God does, which means lay down your life, withdraw yourself to make space. for Fundamentally others, right? different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's just completely different. Yeah. And, and of course, as you lay it down, there's actually life there, isn't there? There's, um, yeah, because narrow is the way that us. leads to life. Yeah. 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 It gives, gives you back life, not that you should push yourself into a um a serving everybody um whole but if when it's sustained and inspired if there is a lot of energy in that where do you see this happening like what what if listeners want to see more of this in action where, where are some sort of sort places or groups that you would recommend they they check out or do you have any sort of sense of who's doing it right that you want to emulate that's a good question um but there's some brilliant stuff going on in a russia which is a Christian conservation organization and they have materials to help with the theology as well um, as does Lausanne creation care which is part of the Lausanne movement um, but then there are just so many people working this out on a small scale and and actually it's growing dramatically I'm sure it's a move of the spirit at the moment there's more books there's more blogs there's more people there's more churches there's eco church has sort of doubled in size in the last year which is a way for church buildings um, to improve their environmental setup um so yeah all that um and then tier funds have a whole thing around uh cop 26 that's the glasgow conference and a, a regular prayer update um well joanne green uh who is the policy director for tier fund she's a friend of tent theology she was a former a guest on this program and she helped spearhead the uh the the plastic the plastic uh campaign the anti-plastic campaign so and what about for science education? Where would you send? You've already mentioned a few websites. Can you sort of rattle off a few of those as well? Like for, for those of us who 
who are uh, ignorant but well-meaning. <laughs> well, well uh, look up Catherine, Ke- Catherine Hayhoe, um, who is a Texas-based Canadian evangelical atmospheric scientist. That's a lot of boxes to check. Wow. Amazing woman. Um, and she has um, a YouTube channel. She's a deliberate communicator of these things, very good science communicator, um, called Global Weirding. So if you, if you looked up global weirding, you'd get her, even if you can't spell Catherine Hayhoe. Um, and so, so she's actually a, a go-to for understanding more of the, the climate, climate thing. Um, ben, if you're look, wanting something deeper and technical, then skeptical, uh, what's it called? Skeptical skill science, skeptical science um, is really brilliant and answers um, with, with deep, proper answers uh, all, all of the kind of arguments you get against climate science which are, you know, should be dead and buried by now but people still come up with the same old chestnuts um men so love that, darkness because their deeds are evil yeah it just justifies even though i mean people yeah. may not realize that but I, I think it probably is that in the end yeah wow catherine hayhoe global weirding and skeptical science and what about you ben how could we find you if we wanted to find you or we want to find your work with ywam or the the prayer warrior <laughs> concept that you're spearheading for you, you can see some um look, look up climateintercessors.org yeah and, and you can sign up there and you probably see me then if you join the zoom um and then uh we haven't quite launched it yet but there will be a ywam cop 26 um website we're working out the wording at the moment um, and you've referenced earlier on today some of the sensitivities around that, how we word things. Um, so that's coming along. Um, I have thought of doing more posting. I've basically had a, uh, because of my background, I haven't done much on social media at all. But the kind of questions you've just asked there, maybe I should be putting up the links I have. Other people have done it, but why shouldn't I do it as well? So. <laughs> wow. Uh, ben Richards, Climate Care scientist charismatic prayer intercessor educator father and friend of mine thank you Hooray so much Stephen for being on tent theology <laughs> i really appreciated your time and i and i really encourage listeners to seek out you and also the people that you recommended this has been a fantastic conversation please come back again maybe maybe if we're still going in 20 years time we'll come back and we'll interview your daughter and we'll find out how she's faring in, <laughs> in London, the Venice of London. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> okay, thank you, Stephen. Go Pleasure. well. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.